Welcome to another Sabbath School podcast. My name is Julian Archer, and it's great to be here with you. Last week, Brad Moody took us through the first chapters of Genesis, looking at the way in which many of the Bible's key foundational doctrines find their source right there in Genesis. And we see things like the seventh day creation, the seventh day Sabbath, marriage, the fall, redemption, and even the cross. Uh, And Brad took us through that beautifully. Thanks very much, Brad. This week, the lesson again looks at Genesis as the foundation of Scripture, but it touches on ideas, in fact, it touches on some interesting ideas, including flat earth theory. Um, That's going to be an interesting one. Uh, The creation accounts in other cultures, uh, creation and paganism, the idea of theistic evolution. And any any one of these topics could easily consume like a whole 30 minutes. So we're just going to touch on the, the peaks, the tops of the mountains, and hopefully I'll be able to give you some analogies and illustrations that you can share with your Zoom Sabbath school classes or however you're doing it this week. But before we start, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open your word now, as we look specifically at those early chapters of Genesis, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us, guide us and lead us into your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So on Sabbath afternoon's lesson, we've got the the memory verse there, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. The witness of creation, of who God is and how much he loves us. You know, every, every person at some stage in their life is amazed by something that they see in nature. It could be an amazing technicolor sunset or, or something that they view through a microscope. The last time nature had a huge impact on me and reminded me of the incredible creative power of God was actually at Malcolm Ray's home just northwest of Newcastle. We were out there for a weekend prayer retreat a few months ago and he invited a a friend from the local community to bring his telescope on Saturday night uh, so that we could look at planets and the moon and stars and that sort of thing. Now for those of you who have looked through a telescope before you know that well sometimes it can be a little disappointing. And, uh, and this, this, well, to be honest with you, it, it, it was that way uh, as we looked at the moon. And I went, okay, I've now seen the moon a bit closer. And then we looked at planets and I go, yeah, okay, gee, they're still really hard to see. Yeah, I can see the rings of Saturn, but mm, yeah, not so flash. And anyway, so over about an hour, we, we all took turns at the telescope looking through at different things that the guy set his telescope to, to see and uh, and I got, I've got to admit, I was getting a bit cold and it was uh, a little bit boring and you get impatient waiting for your ter- time to look through the telescope and all the rest. And anyway, as, as the night wore on, he, he pointed it across and he said, see that cloud up, up there? And it was sort of like a, a fuzzy just cloud, almost like you, a cloud appears above a city when the city lights are shining on it. Uh, but it was just a tiny one. There were a few of them across parts of the Milky Way. And um, he said, I'm going to focus the telescope on that now. So anyway, his telescope goes around, focuses on that, and we all look through. And I tell you what, when I looked through at that cloud, as it was called, it blew my mind. Because that cloud was not just a, a cloud. It was thousands, quite probably millions, maybe billions, I, I don't know, of stars, of galaxies, all right out there in the distance. And, and, you know, as I saw that through the telescope, I just went, God is 
incredible. Uh, and, and so we have these times, these, these opportunities where God reveals himself to us through nature. And the heavens certainly do declare the glory of God. In the lesson there on Sabbath afternoon, it says that many great thinkers were inspired by Scripture to explore God's created world. And as a result, modern science was born. Johannes Kepler, Isaac Newton, John Ray, Robert Boyle and other early great scientists believed that their work revealed even more about the handiwork of God's creation. Interesting that these scientists were doing science because they wanted to learn more about God's creation. However, after the French Revolution, 19th century science, the 1800s, it began to move from a theistic worldview with God at the centre to one based on naturalism and materialism, often with no place at all for the supernatural. These philosophical ideas were popularised by Charles Darwin's book On the Origin of Species in 1859, and since that time, science has increasingly distanced itself from its biblical foundation, resulting in a radical reinterpretation of the Genesis story. So true. You know, today we're living in the heartland of the world that the Apostle Peter described as a society that willfully forgets that by the word of God, the heavens were created and that the world was destroyed by a great flood. As believers, Seventh-day Adventist believers who identify ourselves as the visible remnant of the last days, we have some special creation-centric roles to play. And we find one of them in the first angel's message in Revelation 14:7, where we are told that we are to give a message to the world that says, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea, and springs of water. You know, Seventh-day Adventists are to call all people to worship, not just any God, but the Creator God, the only God. And, you know, I I believe that Seventh-day Adventists should be some of the the world's leading scientists. Uh, I love the work of, of Adventist Dr. John Ashton, who so clearly presents the ways that modern science is challenging evolution. And he also looks at the science of the body and the effects of alcohol on the body. And, you know, this is leading scientific discovery. And I I believe that we should be at the forefront of science as we reveal God through his handiwork. Sunday's lesson goes on to ah, a challenging area about flat earth, the belief that the earth is flat. Our eldest son, Ethan, uh, spent some time in... Nepal a couple of years ago Uh, and uh, while he was over there some volunteers came from another country and uh, he was spending some time with those volunteers and one of them was a genuine dyed-in-the-wool flat earther as they say a person who sincerely believes that the earth is flat uh, which is pretty incredible considering that this person had just flown you know at least a quarter of the way around the world to get to Nepal uh, but believed that the earth is flat. And, you know, there there are some verses in the Bible, as the lesson points out, uh, that could be interpreted that way. So Revelation 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea or on any tree. So there we see four corners of the earth. And then if we go to Revelation 20, verses 7 and 8, 
We read, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. You know, if we took that as a, a literal reading, yes, we would say that the earth has four corners. Therefore, it must be a square or a rectangle uh, and most likely flat. But, you know, we've got to look at the context of the verses. And when we do that, when we, we understand that the author is using figurative language, we see that the four corners of the earth is... A way of saying worldwide. In fact, we used to have a television program here in Australia called Four Corners, and it was it wasn't saying the Earth is flat. It was saying that uh, we're looking at news from all four corners of the Earth. In fact, the word news, uh, which is a a plural of new, so you know, hey, what's new? Give me some news. Uh, also has a, a curious little thing in that it, it can be seen as an acronym as well, N E W S for North east, west, south, the four corners of the earth. So in this figurative language, you know, we use it, John is using it here in, in, uh, in, for example, Revelation. We use it today, we say the sun is setting, or as the lesson points out, the wind rose from the east. Uh, that doesn't literally mean that the sun is setting, or like, like concrete, or that the, ro the wind is lifting up vertically, coming up out of the east, it's figurative language. And to insist on a literal interpretation would, of those verses would mean that we would have to ignore some other verses, like as the lesson points out in Job 26, verses 7 to 10, where it's talking about God and says that he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. And in Isaiah 40 verses 21 and 22, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. You know, if we put ourselves in the position of someone who lived a thousand years ago, what evidence would you have that the earth is flat or that the earth is spherical? I, I thought about this a bit and I, I realised that if you lived at the equator, there would be very little evidence for it being flat or spherical, uh, as there are only very minor seasonal variations. In fact, if you never travelled far north or far south from your home on the equator, you wouldn't have much evidence that the Earth is a sphere. But if you did travel, you would notice some differences in the sun's rising and setting in each season and the angles of it compared to your home. And that would at least breed some curiosity. Well, today, of course, we have scientific discoveries and technologies that confirm the Bible's description of the Earth being a sphere hanging in space on nothing. Now, of course, one way of simply testing this would be to hire a helicopter to fly out over the ocean at sunset and hover just above the sea. And when the sun sets, as it goes over the horizon, once it's completely disappeared, lift your altitude by, say, a kilometre. And, of course, you would see the sun rising again in the west. Um, and then you would watch it as you hovered at one kilometre. You would watch it set again. 
and you could fly up another kilometer and watch it set again and fly up another kilometer and watch it set again. And you could keep doing that until, well, it's probably until the helicopter blades didn't fly because of the thinness of the air and you didn't have any lift. But, you know, if you kept going up, let's say you went up to, say, seven kilometers, you could then call a friend. You could pull out your satellite phone and phone a friend who's living 10,000 kilometers west of your position where you're hovering. And you could ask them what the sun's doing. And they'll tell you, oh, the sun's high in the sky. And there it is. You have solid evidence that the Earth is actually a sphere. Uh, because you're on different sides. You've watched the sunset multiple times as you've gone upwards. You've recorded all the science of that. And you go, hey, yeah, the Bible writers got it right. The Earth is a sphere. Let's go into Monday's lesson. Uh, creation in ancient literature. You know, some, some foundational questions that have been looked at a little already in, in previous lessons, but that uh, questions that underpin all of this discussion about creation and the flood and other accounts in Genesis 1 to 11, uh, did Moses write it? And question number two, did Moses even have a written language in which to write? Now, I mean, this is foundational questions. <laughs> Exodus 24 verse 4 says that Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And in John 5 verses 46 and 47, Jesus himself says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So based on scripture, believers have evidence that supports Moses as the author and that he obviously had a written language to write in. But you know, not all historians believe that written languages even existed in the 1400s BC when Moses would have been writing. I won't go into it all in detail, but if you have an interest in this subject, I recommend the two-part documentary done just last year in 2019 by Timothy Mahoney. It's called The Moses Controversy. It's in his Patterns of Evidence series. And Mahoney scientifically and historically shows that Moses certainly did have a written language available to him. However, some still discredit Moses' writings by saying that he just collated creation stories from other ancient literature. So it seems that no matter which way you, you come at this, there are there are people who will want to say that uh, Moses' writings uh, are not real, that they were written later, or that they, he just collated other stories. And Monday's lesson looks at that collation argument. It says that archaeologists have discovered texts from ancient Egypt and the Near East that contain primeval histories of the creation and the flood. This has caused some to wonder whether the Genesis account was borrowed from these cultures or was dependent in some way on them. So we have to ask ourselves the question, did Moses just borrow his creation story from other cultures? Well, we know the creation record in Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse through to chapter 2, verse 4. So let's read some excerpts from another ancient creation account called the Atrahasis Epic. And as the lesson points out, this is, this is what it says in that. It says, when the gods instead of man did the work, bore the loads, the gods' load was too great, the work too hard, the trouble too much. Let the womb goddess create offspring, and let man bear the load of the gods. Geshtu'i, a god who had intelligence, they slaughtered in their assembly. Nintu mixed clay 
with his flesh and blood. Does that sound like the, the Genesis creation account to you? Well, yes and no. There certainly are some similarities between the stories. For example, the first humans were made by a god from clay. But, you know, the differences are even more definite. In Atrahasis, man works for the gods so that the gods can rest. That's very different to the biblical account. In Atrahasis, a minor god is killed and his blood is mixed with clay to form seven males and seven females. Again, very different. In the Atrahasis story, it includes conflict and violence in the creation story. Again, very different to the biblical account. You know, through the ages, creation and flood stories were handed down in different cultures, loosely based on what really had happened. And hence we see that there are some similarities. But they were distorted over time. In contrast, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who was present at creation, revealed what had really taken place. You know, it reminds me of the way that many people see biblical concepts and narratives in Hollywood movies. You know, Star Wars is a classic example. It doesn't make the story of the movie accurate or truthful or even something that we should be spending time watching. But it does reveal that the creators of the movie were raised in a society where God's word is known and the great controversy between good and evil is ingrained into the culture. You know, we can thank God that Moses was directly inspired by God to record an accurate and truthful creation account in which we can see God's love, his mercy, and his creative power. Let's go on to Tuesday's lesson, which is titled Genesis versus Paganism. It says there, far from being dependent upon ancient pagan creation myths, Genesis seems to have been written in a way that refutes those myths and distances God as creator from the myths. Now, the lesson gives the example of how the sun and moon in Genesis are depicted as objects created by God, which was actually in direct opposition to the surrounding pagan beliefs in Moses' day, which said that the sun and moon are gods to be worshipped. So Genesis presents a corrective, truth-filled account that goes against the myths of the ancient world. You know, it's worth noting that ever since pagan religions came into existence, they have taught a legalistic, fear-based religion where man has to work hard to ascend upwards from his miserable state. And yet this usually involves some sort of penance or pilgrimage or hardship or poverty or pain. They all claim that if we perform these works well enough, then we can become enlightened and finally even rise up to a state where we are like the gods. And the biblical account is quite the opposite. It shows us that humans were created perfectly and beautifully in the image of God, the highest pinnacle of creation. We then chose to fall. And God, the God of love, then descended to die for us so that we, through his efforts, his works, could become like we were originally created to be, like Jesus. Once we realize this, we love God and we want to live like Jesus did in order to return the love to him. And this lifestyle, in turn, brings us great peace and joy and not fear. You know, thousands of years ago, 
when Moses wrote the biblical creation story, it was at odds with the prevailing cultures around him. And today, the biblical creation story is still at odds with the prevailing culture. And the lesson points out the question, why shouldn't we be surprised? Well, one of the reasons why we shouldn't be surprised that God's creation story, Genesis 1 through to 11, in fact, including the Tower of Babel and the Flood as well, is at odds with the prevailing culture around us, it was actually foretold in Peter. In 2 Peter 3, 3 to 6, he says this, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And for those of you who are scholars of Bible prophecy, you'll know that the last days, the biblical last days began in 1798 at the end of the 1260-day prophecy. So Peter says that knowing this, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. And in Second Timothy we have another foretelling of the future of this same lack of, of belief and faith in the last days. Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Friends, God's word is very clear that the biblical worldview will always be at odds with any culture that is promoting ways of living other than his ways. Yet, in his great love, he calls us to share his beautiful, healing and satisfying ways with people living in darkness. Let's keep moving. We're going to get on to Wednesday's lesson here titled Creation and Time. And this part of the lesson looks at the Old Testament genealogies and how they are very unique when compared with other ancient genealogies. The lesson says the one element that makes these biblical genealogies unique is that they contain the element of time, causing some scholars to correctly call them chronogenealogies. You know, these genealogies give the name of the patriarch in each generation, his age when he gave birth to his eldest son, and how many years he lived after that. And then it's repeated for the eldest son and his eldest son, etc., etc. And this interlocking genealogy system removes the ability of editors to delete or add generations and thereby protects the biblical record and provides an accurate and reliable timeline of Earth's earliest history. And, you know, for more than well, almost 2,000 years, Jewish and Christian expositors have interpreted these texts to represent history and an accurate way to determine the date of the flood and the age of the earth, starting with the seven days of creation as depicted in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I came across something interesting recently, which I haven't had a chance to study into fully, but it's, it's an interesting thing. It looks at the genealogy in, in Genesis chapter 5. And, of course, we know that in Genesis chapter 5, it says that Adam begat Seth, who begat Enosh, who begat Canaan, Mahalal, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, who begat Noah. So we have this genealogy running through and all the ages and, and, and all the rest. So we can add up the time from Adam through to Noah. But this thing that I came across uh, points out that the gospel is actually told in the names or the meaning of the names of each of those men in that genealogy. So Adam means man, Seth means appointed, 
Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. Jared shall come down. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech, the despairing. And Noah, rest or comfort. And this thing that I came across joins all that together into a sentence. And it says, man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. And so, as I say, I haven't looked into it in detail, but if it's true, then the gospel is hidden within the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Something for you to check out. You know, but as foretold in Second Peter, and we're looking there in Timothy as well, today people willfully forget God and his word, and they raise doubts about the reliability of the Bible. Let's, let's go on to Thursday, creation in Scripture. You know, there's more than 100 references to Genesis in the New Testament. 60 of those references are to Genesis chapters 1 to 11, the, the most contested and argued over chapters in Genesis. The New Testament, interesting, refers to all 11 chapters, all of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Jesus referred 16 times to Genesis chapters 1 to 11. God didn't want us to forget or reinterpret that part of history. And the New Testament writers are very clear on that. And Thursday's lesson gives a wonderful list of verses that show how every Bible writer believed in the factual truthfulness of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, let's keep moving on. You know, you don't have to be a scientist to see evidence for some of those things in, in early in Genesis. I remember, uh, you know, when you consider the evidence for the flood, we lived in Nepal for a number of years, and I remember hiking, uh, trekking up in the Himalayas, almost 5,000 metres above sea level, and, and looking at a cliff beside the path, and seeing seashells uh, in, in the cliff, so, so like fossilised seashells, 5,000 metres, 5 kilometres above the present day sea level. Friends, there has to have been some catastrophic thing to have happened for, that, for those seashells to be that high up. And uh, I remember going to the Grand Canyon once and standing on the edge of the canyon and looking down at the, at the strata and the geology of it and, and the way the sedimentary layers were down towards the bottom. And we had just had a flood in 2011 in, uh, in Flagstone Creek, right beside my house. And as the flood went down, the, the, the eroded creek looked just like a miniature Grand Canyon with the way the sediment had, had settled as the flood water ripped through and then slowly drained out. Very, very interesting. But you know, in the, in the 1800s, we had guys like, geologists like Charles Lyell, who openly said that he wanted to free geology from Moses. Wow, what a statement. He wanted to free geology from Moses. If you want to, if you want to look more at what happened in the 1800s, and it, it really is fascinating to study, I recommend watching The Origin of Old Earth Geology and Christian Compromise in the Early 19th Century. It's a, a DVD by Dr. Terry Mortensen, and it's in the Answers in Genesis series. Uh, or read the article by Jeff Reich, Evolution of Thought. And that's in Layman Ministries Journal from the summer fall of 2010. Fascinating what happened in the 1800s as God was raising up a, a visible remnant in the Seventh-day Adventist church uh, and the great Advent awakening. Satan was in parallel raising up guys like Charles Darwin and, and Lyell and others who 
we're fighting against God's truths. Friday, we have a beautiful passage there from Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 25, where Ellen White wrote, The Bible is the most comprehensive and the most instructive history which men possess. It came fresh from the fountain of eternal truth, and a divine hand has preserved its purity through all the ages. Here only can we find a history of our race, unsullied by human prejudice or human pride. Friends, it's only through faith that we believe these things. It's through faith that we see the the scientific discoveries that support the flood and other things from Genesis 1 to 11. Let's be faith-filled and take up the three angels' messages and go out to lovingly announce to the world that we all need to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. I encourage you after we pray to look up Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. In fact, read the whole chapter, the faith chapter of Hebrews 11. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are the great creator God. And Lord, that not only did you create us, but you redeemed us. You came down to lift us up, to save us. Father, I pray that you will continue to strengthen our faith that you will continue to give us greater and greater evidence from science and from your word that you are the creator God, that you are faithful and that you are coming again soon. And Lord, may we then go out and share your love, your truth with a world in need. I pray on this in Jesus' name. Amen.